Judges chapter 6 this morning, please. Judges chapter 6, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. What's that, the sixth, seventh book in the Bible? Judges chapter 6. We're going to cherry-pick down through this passage, so we're going to talk today about the topic of to fleece or not to fleece. And uh, so just kind of follow along in your copy of Scripture as I jump. We're going to start in chapter 6, verse number 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Verse number 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Verse number 34. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abiezrites gathered behind him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all of the ground. Then Jerubiel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you. The same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you. The same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall sit apart by himself. 
Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below in the valley. Jump down to verse 16. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, and I, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp. And say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the three hundred blew the trumpets... The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerira, as far as the border of Abel-Maholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. And we'll stop right there. Father God, we're so thankful for the privilege we have to open your word. Oh, Father, this is your word. We know this is not any normal book. Forgive us when we treat it like it is. Give us when we set it on a shelf and don't give it the attention that it needs in our lives. Give us when we forget how many blessings there are to those who read it, those who learn from these wonderful stories, even these Old Testament stories. So speak to us from it today. I pray once again for the filling of your spirit. I pray you'd help me to teach clearly and accurately, practically. I pray, Lord, today that my voice would hold out. I pray that you would just guide us as we examine your word and teach us, and uh, may we respond uh, and hear what you have to say and uh, put it into practice in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in the book of Judges this morning, and the book of Judges gives us the history of a time when the Israelites were in the promised land, but they were, for the most part, not obeying the God who had put them there. Moses, as you'll recall, and as we've talked about, had led them in, uh, in, uh, out of Egypt and right up to the brink of the promised land, but Moses had died before they entered in. And then Joshua had led them over the Jordan River and the glorious conquest of Canaan, and we talked about his conquest of Jericho, uh, and so he had led them for quite some time, all of his life, but then he too had died. Both of those great leaders were gone. And now the Israelites were in the land. They had no single leader. And so there was a vacuum of leadership. And in that vacuum of leadership that took place after Moses and Joshua and before Saul became king later on, uh, there was this long period that's covered by the book of Judges, this period of anarchy. The theme of the book of Judges is mentioned repeatedly. It's mentioned one final time as the closing verse of the book. 
Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like America to me. No leadership meant everybody pretty much did whatever they decided was right, and the result was anarchy. No leadership also meant there was nobody calling them back to God, nobody proclaiming the word of God. And so the people fell into this natural, sinful tendency that all of us have since the fall. There is a somber rhythm throughout the book of Judges. The people would drift from God and fall into sin. Until finally God would get fed up with that and he would pour out his wrath and judgment on but usually by bringing some other people group in to subjugate them for a period of time. And then when the Israelites had had enough of that punishment, they would cry out for deliverance and God would raise up a judge. And that judge would lead them in deliverance. For a time that judge would rule the people. Order would be restored. Things would be good. The worship of God would once again be taking place. And then the cycle would repeat. Over and over this Sinful falling away, this prayer for deliverance when God judged, uh, a judge being delivered, uh, raised up to deliver them and restore order and then repeat. It's like what you see on a shampoo bottle over and over and over. Well, our story today is, is an example of one such cycle. It begins with the people in desperate need of deliverance from the Midianites. The Midianites, a powerful group of people who were sent by God to judge Israel uh, for their most recent falling away from him. They had oppressed and impoverished and tortured and tormented Israel for seven years, according to verse number one. And finally, they had cried out to God, seeking deliverance in verse number six. And he had chosen a man named Gideon to deliver them from Midian in verse number 14. So as we, as we study this, this story, we're going to see some very familiar themes. Uh, a lot of the same themes are arising in all of these different Old Testament stories. Uh, God promised to deliver his people. God selected someone whom he would use in that deliverance. And God would not do it in some way that that person would get glory or anybody else would get glory, but only in such a way that God would get glory. And so let's notice how those themes play out in this particular story. Three points I want to make today. Number one, God promises. Number two, Gideon questions. And number three, God delivers on his promise. First of all, God promises. Verse number 11, now the angel of the Lord came. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord claimed. We have to stop right there because we've seen this in several of our previous studies, haven't we? The angel of the Lord. This is a theophany. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit even referred to him as Lord there in verse number 14. And Gideon, by the end of his conversation with him, was pretty clear just who he was talking to. He knew that he was talking to the Lord. And so God himself took visible form and appeared to Gideon. Now, anybody but the Lord might have had a little trouble finding Gideon. Because I don't know if you noticed as we read that, but Gideon was hiding. He was not wanting to be found he was not even wanting to be seen. He was threshing wheat in the wine press. Now, that's an unusual place to thresh wheat. I don't know if you've thought that through a little bit. But it was a place where he figured the Midianites would not find him. On our last trip to Israel, we visited a place called Nazareth Village. It's just right outside the actual city of Nazareth, the biblical city of Nazareth. And what it is is a recreation of what Nazareth would have looked like in Jesus' day. Anybody? Did you go to us? Anybody here who went with us that time? I can't remember who went with us on that last trip. 
But in any case, Nazareth today is a modern city. And so this, you walk into this, and it's like stepping back into time. There was, interestingly, a wine press there. And there was also a threshing area there. And, and when you think about those things and you see those things in your mind, you realize how ludicrous this scene really was. Uh, a threshing, or a wine press, was a, at least the one that was in that particular reenactment, was a, a room, dark, inside, small, close, where they pressed with stones and things like that, and, and uh, Preston got wine. There, the threshing area was on the outside. It was actually a large area. Uh, there was a donkey uh, that was dragging a threshing sledge, they called it around. He was staked in the middle, and he was circling in a large, I'd say that area was as big as this room. And uh, the, the, the person who was threshing the wheat would first winnow it. He would take a a fork, and he would throw it up in the air so that the breeze caught it and scattered the chaff, and the rest of it would fall down in the path of this donkey. And this donkey would just continue to go around and, and run that thing over top of the wheat, and it would just separate uh, into its various constituencies. The fact that, that Gideon was doing that in the wine press tells us a couple of things. It tells us, first of all, he really was afraid. He was hiding because the Midianite raiders took everything that they could get from the Israelites. They would just descend upon them and take anything that they had. And so he wanted to make sure that they could not see him. But the other thing it tells us is that he didn't have a whole lot of grain, did he? He didn't have much. It tells us something of the poverty of the people at the time. And so here he was in this small space hiding out, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, we need to pause for a moment and think about that description of Gideon. How many of you think he looked like a mighty man of valor there? If you picture him in that dark, dank place, cowering, hiding. He didn't look like much with his tidy stash of wheat. And I have to confess to you that for years, whenever I've read this story, I always thought that that was a humorous reference. I always interpreted it that way. Sarcastic, you mighty man of valor. Like, you know, just poking fun at him. But, you know... After reading this story innumerable times, I don't know how many times over the years I've read this story. Uh, reading it this time through, I got a different thought about that. And uh, it really blessed my heart. And it really reminds me of how important the discipline of Bible reading is for the believer. It's not enough to just read the Bible on Sunday morning. It's not enough to just pick it up when the preacher's preaching and follow along. It's not enough to just read it casually once in a while. It's not enough to have the verse of the day pop up on your screensaver or read the memes that come up on Facebook. It's not enough even to read it from beginning to end. All those things are good. Wonderful. You should do them. But we need to be in this word a lot. Daily. Often. Continually. Repeatedly, when we read it through, we should start over and read it again. We should immerse ourselves in it. We should swim in it, breathe it like air, eat it like food, because this book is alive. And every time that you read it, you get something out of it. And this time, for example, in this case, mighty man of valor might possibly be a tongue-in-cheek thing. It might have been humorous. I don't think that's a wrong way to look at it at all. I think it's very possible. Gideon was far from it at this cowering moment, but... Here's what else it could be. It could be a reminder that the Lord sees us as we really are, not as we or others see us. He sees us as we are in Christ, as we will be. He doesn't see our sins or our failings, for they're gone. 
covered by the blood. They're washed away. They're nailed to the cross. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten and flung away from us as far as the east is from the west. That's what the psalmist said. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. God sees the believer as redeemed and holy and perfect in Christ. Gideon might have seen himself as anything but a mighty man of valor. But God knew both what he was and what he would be. Well, God told Gideon that he had a job for him to do. Go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the Midianites, verse number 14. God wasn't saying they're going this your own strength. That's not that's how you might read that verse, but that's not what he meant. He was saying, go in the strength I am giving you. Just as he said to us when he gives us our commission to go. Some wonderful parallels there between our commission and this one he gave to him. You should receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's basically what he was saying, the same thing there. And so as Gideon stood questioning, God asked, have I not sent you? Get moving. I've given you a job. And this brings us finally to the promise. I titled this part of the sermon, God's Promises. Brings us finally to it in verse number 16. And it was wonderful. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Gideon, you will not be alone. God will be with you. And the enemy might look insurmountable, but God alone would make them fall as if they were one single weak opponent. God's promise. Let's notice number two, Gideon's questions. Gideon's questions. Now, throughout Gideon's initial meeting with the Lord, he had been questioning what God was saying. If you are really with us, God, then why are we in all this trouble? Why are the Midianites destroying us, he asked early on in the conversation. Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about? Verse number 13. By the way, that verse is great in the old King James Version. Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of? Where be all his miracles? You ever been in a place in your life where you ask that question? I have. Where be all his miracles? Well, God did some things to increase Gideon's faith. I've skipped some parts of the story, and you can go and read that on your own. I'm not going to go into all those things, but when we get to chapter 6 and verse number 36, many of Gideon's questions have been answered. He's on the brink of going to war now, finally, with Midian. And he just has one simple final request. Just a little request that he says will assure him of God's intent and purpose. He asks for a sign. He says he wants to lay out a fleece. He wants to lay out a sheepskin on the floor. And he asks God to do a miracle with it during the night, to make it wet with dew while keeping the surrounding ground dry. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Now, we can spend a lot of time on the ludicrous nature of that sentence. It really is pretty ridiculous, but uh, we'll just leave it there. God just left it there, and he said, okay. And so he did it. He did exactly what he asked. The next morning, Gideon found a wringing wet fleece laying on the floor, uh, the dry threshing floor. Still not convinced, he asked for just one more sign. He said, well, let's just try the opposite, Lord. Maybe that one was easy. Maybe that was too easy of a request. Let's try something else. And the next morning, he found a dust-dry fleece lying on a soaking wet threshing floor. Now, an awful lot of preaching has been done. 
about this matter of putting out a fleece. Many Christians, myself included, have even made use of that technique. Probably if I were to go around and ask for a showing of hands, how many of you have ever put out a fleece? My guess is that quite a few of you would say you have. It is to many a way of determining God's will in a matter. Lord, if you want me to surrender to the mission field, then. Lord, if you want me to marry this particular person, then. And we'll give some little test we want him to do for us to prove that's what he wants. Lord, if you want me to buy that new car, then. Whatever. We come up with all kinds of things. In our text, I think the fleece request was absolutely an indication of weak faith on Gideon's part. He already knew. He even said he already knew in his sentence back to the Lord. He already knew what God had told him to do. He already knew what God had promised he would do. I can't imagine the grace of God that did not slap his face off at the very mention of that word, if. It just amazes me. If you really mean what you say, Lord, that's where I would have been, but not God. The question, of course, comes, is, is what about us? Should, should we do that? Should we put out a fleece from time to time when we're seeking God's will? Is it a right practice or a wrong practice? You have some big decision looming, some big case ahead of you that you're trying to figure out. Should we put out a fleece? Well, you're going to get as many answers to that as there are preachers, but here's my thought on it. I would consider it a last resort. I would consider it a last resort if... It's even something we should do at all. Gideon knew God's will because he had been given a word from the Lord already, making it quite clear. And the fact is, so have we. Most of the time, the answer to our questions is right here in this book. And we don't need any other information. We just don't like what we're reading. We're trying to come up with something else. Most of the time, that's a problem. And and, and so if we already know the answer, we sin by asking God to confirm what he's already said. And it also seems to me just a bit presumptuous. I don't know, does it seem a bit presumptuous to you to tell God what to do? That's what he was doing here. He's telling God what to do. And I find that any time I define the sign I want to see, I'm leading God to what I want. Have you ever done that? Lord, if you really want me to quit my job, go full-time in ministry in deep, dark Uganda, then let the earth still stand still for 24 hours. If, on the other hand, you want me to take that nice job in Hawaii, let it just keep spinning normal. We lead God. And I think any time I start trying to lead God, to tell God what to do, I'm on a wrong path. Have I put out fleeces in the past? I have. And probably many of you have too. Have I seen clear answers using that technique? I can't think of a time. What I've found most useful in my personal walk with Christ and in my prayer life is more like something like this. If I, if I face a big decision, I usually find myself praying, Lord, I'm seeking your will and not mine. Lead me in the right choice and lead me in a way that is impossible for me to misunderstand. God has answered that prayer for me on many occasions. Well, God in his grace did not slap Gideon silly for his impertinent request. He granted him his two signs, and finally the day of battle came. So we've seen God's promise. We've seen Gideon's question. Let's look notice. Let's notice now finally God keeping his promise. In some ways, I think this is one of the funnier stories in the Old Testament. Gideon has gathered this vast army. 
as big of a one as he could find. He stands ready to fight. But here he is. He's just ready to attack. He's looking at the enemy, and he hears a little voice. Uh, Gideon? Gideon? You got too many men. Too many men, verse number two. God said, I don't want Israel believing they won this battle in their own strength or might. I want you to whittle down your army to a more manageable size. I want you to do this. Tell whoever is afraid that they can go home. No questions asked. Verse number three. And one can only imagine the look in Gideon's eyes as he uttered that announcement and watched in horror as 22,000 of his original 32,000 melted away. Now, if Gideon was like David after him, he no doubt had mighty men, others who were, you know, soldierly types who were there helping him to assist in the, in the oversight of his troops and the command of his troops. And I imagine they were giving him quite an earful right about that. But God had said to let him go. And so Gideon said, let him go. And by the way, think about that. What, what do you suppose that scene looked like to the onlookers, to those in the surrounding area? What, what did it look like to the wives, ladies, the children of the army that had rallied to the cause, who had fired themselves up. There'd probably been all this, you know, big send-off. There'd been all this clashing of steel and leather and tramping of feet as they went off to battle. And now they come melting back very, very slowly and quietly. I can just imagine a man walking into his home, hanging his stuff up very quietly, his wife looking up from whatever she's doing and saying, Honey, you home so soon? How'd it go? How come your armor is so clean? I can imagine him saying, oh, you know, it went okay. Turned out to be a lot easier than we thought it was going to be. How would you like to be the one who had to explain to your wife and children and neighbors that you were one of those who took advantage of the, is anybody afraid, clause? I wouldn't want to be that one. But anyway, 22,000 disappeared. And I can imagine Gideon feverishly reworking his battle strategy and accounting for the loss of most of his army. And then he hears this little voice once again. Uh, Gideon? Gideon, you, you still have too many men. Too many men, verse number four. And I suddenly, in my mind, my mind is weird. In my mind, I suddenly picture Gideon looking like Gary Coleman. And it's cocking an eye in the Lord's direction and saying, uh, what you talking about? Too many men. How can it be? Let's fast forward to verse number 12. Let's see what Gideon was facing. Look at verse number 12. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. He knew that from the very beginning he'd been outnumbered, vastly outnumbered, by orders of magnitude. And then God had taken away 22,000 of his original 32,000. And now he wanted it depleted even more. God gave him a method of whittling down the army. He said, I want you to take them to the water. I want you to let them have a drink. Some are going to kneel down. They're going to put their faces into the water and drink. And some are going to lap the water with their tongues like a dog. Now, I don't understand this. I really don't. Sure, I'm not sure I understand that last picture because to me, the ones who are kneeling in the water would seem to be the ones who are lapping. But uh, you've got to get your tongue down there somehow. But most resolve, or resolve this problem by concluding the lappers raised the water up to their mouth and laughed it that way. And I think the text even, even uh, implies that. But however the drinking was accomplished, God told Gideon to separate the lappers from the kneelers <laughs> and send the kneelers home. 
And he must have been nearly in tears as he watched 9,700 kneelers walk away and only 300 remained. Now, preachers and theologians have gone to great lengths to try to explain the reasoning behind God's methods here. Maybe the lappers were more vigilant, some might say, keeping their eyes trained forward, looking for the enemy, while the kneelers plunged their face into the water with no such thought. I remember one of my pastors one time preaching a sermon about that, and he went into great lengths and and demonstrated in front of everybody how vigilant the person would have looked as he was lapping versus the person who was kneeling. The fact is, all of that is nonsense. Because God has already told us what he was trying to accomplish here. He was not trying to get some kind of an elite fighting force. That's not what he was trying to do. He was trying to whittle us down to such a ridiculous group that God, not Israel, not these 300 men, and not Gideon, would get the glory. Only God. Nobody could defeat the Midianites with 300 men. Whether they were lappers or kneelers, it didn't matter. This was going to bring credit to God. So now the troops are squared away. The size question has been resolved, and the next question no doubt has to have been about weapons. And although the text doesn't tell us that God told Gideon what to do here, it it must be implied. I cannot imagine that Gideon came up with this plan of what to arm these people with. God must have told them. Give every man an empty pitcher and a lighted torch inside the pitcher. Oh, and by the way, give give him a trumpet too. That'll help. And then in the middle of the night, spread out around the Midianites, uh, in, in, in a big circle so that they are completely surrounded, and then break the pitcher so the torches shine forth, blow the trumpets and shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. By now I can imagine Gideon was done with questioning the Lord. Can you imagine his 300 men listening to this battle plan? Can you imagine them lining up in their little army, or their little line, to come up to the armorer and pick up their weaponry? Can you imagine as they get to the front of the line and they receive a trumpet? Then a pitcher? And a torch? And they say, uh, where's my sword? And the only response is, next! <laughs> Gideon and his men did as they were commanded. They surrounded the camp. They broke their pitchers. They raised high their flaming torches. They blew their trumpets. They shouted the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And then they just stood there. And they watched in the light of their 300 torches as... God caused the Midianites to turn on themselves and hack each other to death. All they had to do was stand there and watch God work. God had sent Gideon. He had empowered him to defeat the Midianites. He had promised Gideon that he would go with him and enable him to defeat the vast armada as easily as if they were a single man. He had told Gideon that he would bring victory in such a way that nobody but God could get glory. And now Gideon was looking down at his fearful enemies, hacking each other to pieces and seeing God fulfill that promise. The story of Gideon reminds us of some things. It reminds us that whatever battles we may face as Christians, we will see victory. Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the foes arrayed against you as one man. The Lord said that to him. I believe he says it to us as well. You don't need to put out a fleece to believe that. God has promised you deliverance. What it looks like, you may not quite see at this time. It may be a deliverance that only God could accomplish. It may be a deliverance that will bring glory only to him. But if he has promised that he will do it, 
being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You can cling to that. You don't need to put out a fleece for that. The story of Gideon reminds us, like so many other Old Testament stories, that nothing is too hard for our God. No enemy is too strong. No task too difficult. No problem insurmountable. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing is too hard. Whatever we may face, we can get a hold of his promise. Surely I will be with you. We can trust it completely. Listen, if God could destroy an army numerous as the sand by the seashore in multitude with 300 unarmed men carrying pitchers and trumpets and torches, he can handle your problems. You don't need to put out a fleece for that. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, the story of Gideon reminds us that God has promised deliverance for all. All who are lost. And he's provided that deliverance through the most unlikely of means. Means that could bring glory to no man but only to God. And you know what I'm talking about. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul wrote, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. You don't need to put out a fleece. To receive the forgiveness and salvation that Jesus promises. You only need to believe. Well, Father, we're thankful for this wonderful story. And Lord, there's so much more we could talk about, but we're out of time. And I pray today, Lord, that uh, what we've said and what we've shared is helpful. Lord, are there those here today who don't know Christ, who have never trusted Christ? Then I pray that somewhere in any of this, in the songs that were sung earlier or the fellowship or the conversations with the folks in the seats beside them. I, I pray, Lord, that the gospel has shown through. The Holy Spirit would get hold of hearts, and, Lord, that no one would leave here lost. Father, I pray that everybody in this room is clear and understands that the Bible is, is absolutely certain that if a person has not trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior in an active, knowable way, then they're lost and they're on their way to hell. So, Lord, if there's anyone with questions about that, I pray as we sing, they'd... Uh, Nothing would stop them. They'd step out, come to the front, let us take the Bible and show them how they can know that for sure and be saved. But Lord, I pray also for Christians because I believe the, the message primarily of, of Gideon has to do with uh, the, the, the promises that you make to us as believers. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's facing a battle or anyone here who's facing what seems to them to be insurmountable situation, I pray they'd take heart as they realized that the very same God who took care of Gideon and made promises to Gideon and delivered on those promises will deliver them. So I pray you'd increase our faith. Help us to trust you. And uh, recognize we don't need to put out a fleece for any of those things. We can just believe what we've already seen and read and learned from your word. And so may we take heart. If there's anyone today who needs to pray about anything that's discouraging them or has them down, I pray, Lord, they'd know the altar is open as well for that and uh, that they'd take care of that business. Lord, however we need to respond, help us to pray in Jesus' name.